I think we are at such an incredible point in time where what's available to people is finally catching up to the theory in many ways. We now are saying, not only do I don't want to die, but I want to live well. I want to look good. I want to have my head together. I want to be able to go hiking. I want to, and I want to be doing that when I'm 80. And then I want to be doing that when I'm 90. So we've really upped the ante. So if that's something in your mind that you're sitting there saying, I want to live a long time and I want to have all of these other things, then you have to be looking at the longevity and age rejuvenation programs because those are the people that are in the space of not fixing what's wrong with you. I mean, they're going to want to look at to help to overcome whatever is ailing you, as it were, but they're actually taking it a step further and saying, what can we do now to prevent the decline? Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you about a protocol that I'm passionate about that I use in my practice. You know, everyone wants to slow down aging, but few are really doing it the right way. There's something I do recommend for my clients doing just two days a month. It's a bodily cleanse that helps get rid of old defective cells. These are sometimes called senescent cells or referred to as zombie cells. And they are shown to be related to so many symptoms of poor aging. This bodily cleanse is a supplement which contains a group of ingredients called senolytics. Senolytic ingredients help our body to flush senescent cells helping with easier repair and rejuvenation from muscles to joints to how we feel every day. Qualia Senolytic is the bodily cleanse supplement taken just two days a month for healthy aging that you have to try. Now, research on aging and longevity, including a beta study on Qualia Senolytic, shows that Senolytic supplementation can play a huge role in enhancing how we age. Now, to learn more about Senolytic research and to try Qualia Senolytic risk-free for 100 days, Go to neurohacker.com, use the code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for a free gift with purchase. That's Qualius Synalytic for better aging at neurohacker.com. All right. Uh, welcome to the Collective Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Dan Stickler, the medical director here at Neurohacker. And I've got a very special guest today, somebody who I have known for quite some time. I've watched her her personal growth in the health and wellness industry. It's uh, Natalie Nidham, and she is a self-proclaimed science geek, and I can attest to that from my interactions with her, with a passion for human health. She is a certified holistic nutritionist, an epigenetic coach, and a member of the first graduating class of the Human Potential Training Institute. Natalie is also the host of Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast, which you definitely should be listening to. And she features cutting-edge guests in the field of longevity, health optimization, and, of course, biohacking. So welcome to the show, Natalie. Thank you so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. And, of course, I have great guests. I've had you on. <laughs> That's right. When was that? Was it January of this year or something? We, did a, we were overdue to do a follow-up, but... Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. <laughs> we, we end up running into each other all the time, so I would never remember exactly what it was that we were exactly we're doing. But yeah, I, I'm excited to, to talk about, you know, biohacking in general. And, uh, you know, can you, can you kind of give us, there's so many definitions of biohacking and really 
give us your definition. What do you, what do you consider biohacking? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and I think as time goes on, it's it's an evolving space, right? To me, biohacking is really when an individual um, decides to take ownership of whatever outcome it is that they're looking to achieve in their their health and their growth journey. And so we stop, you know, they, I think back in the day when biohacking maybe first came out, people had images of people having implants and doing all these crazy things to their bodies. Whereas biohacking has now, it's kind of come full circle, right? We are often trying to reclaim our connection to nature. We're trying to restore that relationship we have with the natural world, like kind of get the best of the natural world, but then turning our attention to what's new in the tech, health technology or regenerative space or supplementation and say, okay, if I have this foundation of connection to nature and the natural world and I can reclaim access to that in the way that it feeds my body and my physiology, and now what's next? And so we're willing to, the biohackers out there right now, we are willing and never mind willing, we are we are driven to look outside of the conventional space of what health and wellness is and see what's next what what else can we do but we but we've but i think where biohacking has really come is the big difference between biohacking now and maybe 10 years ago is this new recognition and this rekindling of our relationship with the natural world love that um, cuz it's true a lot of people consider biohacking doing experimental interventions or the the implants and i think i think they're called grinders the ones that put in the implants uh okay that's that sounds uh, distinctly unappealing (laughs) yeah i don't know how that term came about but the you know the thing that a lot of people don't realize that aren't familiar with biohacking is that it could be something as simple as a lifestyle i mean you're doing Mm -hmm. an intervention of some sort that is that you're measuring the what it, your body how your body responds to it how your physiology responds so i love that um i love that definition so how did you get into biohacking in the first place good question um i think i officially got into biohacking um you know i it, curiosity right i think it's it's curiosity and and it was before i went back to school and became a holistic nutritionist it was before I started listening to, you know, back in the day, I started listening to Dave Asprey's podcast. I started listening to Ben Greenfield's podcast, like those big guys who are, you know, the kind of like the giants in our space right now. It was even before that, it was when I came across this thing called the paleo diet. I was like, wow, what's that, right? And it was when, and, you know, going back to my definition, I think it's a little bit when I started to realize that we are not just a leaf floating down this river, um, waiting to be taken somewhere by the current. It's when I looked around me, I looked at my family, I looked at my at the he- chronic health issues that run rampant in my family. And I started to say to myself, well, wait a minute, does this have to happen? Is this the way things have to go? And when I started to question that and I started looking for, for answers and I started to realize, wait, what you do, how you do things, what you eat, what you, you know, all of those things actually can really massively change our outcome. That's when I started kind of, that's what, that was my entrance into the world of biohacking before, without even really knowing it. 
at the time. It sounds similar to mine. I mine started with the caveman diet, Robert Crayon. Uh, oh wow, you a long time ago, uh, and then it went into paleo, um, and of course CrossFit. Those all kind of play yeah. together. But yeah, I mean, it's most people who have been into biohacking have been in it for quite a while. But you also have a lot of people that have resolved health issues. And that can be good and bad. I mean, you know, they talk about their experience, but a lot of them try to take people on on their personal journey rather than helping the people discover their own journey, um, which yeah. I think, like like you do, is really just being very uh, individualized with your approach to your clients. A hundred percent. I think that, you know, and I think that's the the diet industry books, right? How many books or influencers on Instagram are like, hey, and and well, I guess they're still out there. Probably I don't, I don't follow them as much, but I did this and I achieved this. Therefore, I'm going to write a book about it. I'm going to, I'm going to start an Instagram channel, and the next thing you know, they've got tens of thousands of followers. But the but the the reality of the diet, just to take one example, the the reality of the diet book industry is that most of that stuff doesn't work. And it's really what you're talking about. The keto diet will hit it for a percentage of the population and be a disaster for an, probably more people than it hits. Um, but the people who make the most noise are like, look at me, check me out, you know, and the algorithm feeds on that. You don't have too many people writing a book about how the keto diet destroyed my insulin sensitivity and, you know, backfired and caused drove inflammation in my body and the whole nine yards. So, you know, it's... It's definitely, I think as a consumer who might be just getting into this space, whether we want to call it um, biohacking or health optimization or whatever we want to call it, you know, be careful that you, you do a little bit of homework on the people that you choose to follow, that you look a little bit behind the curtain and make sure that they've got, they've done some work. And some people, to their credit, they got the big results. They're so inspired. They go get educated. They get into the research and they come back, you know, to present their information in a more holistic, balanced way. But unfortunately, that's more often than not. It's not the it's not the way. I mean, I have a guy that just um, there's a post actually waiting to be approved in my Facebook community. And it's classic. You know, it's his before and after picture. I used to look like this. I look like this now. I used all these different peptides and this is how I did it. I feel amazing and I just want to share my story. And I can smell a dude who's like, follow me, do what I did. I'm your guy, right? And I'm sitting there going, and it, and it's and it's interesting. We were actually talking about this before. When you manage these large online communities, the the responsibility of trying to curate and protect the community while at the same time allowing people to have their voice is such a delicate balance because I, the last thing I want people to think is all you, you know, oh, just go buy this stuff, give yourself a bunch of shots and here's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty common uh, theme with a lot of people because uh, everybody's looking for that, that magic bullet, that one thing that is going to change the outcome for them and you know hey it worked for so-and-so so why wouldn't it work for me and you know differently uh, especially since you're versed in epigenetics thanks so to you you're using that 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, I think that epigenetics is part of our bioindividuality. It's not the whole story, obviously. It's It gives us insight into some of the... Um, some of the switches in your body, some of the channels that are maybe are going to work well for you, some of the channel, you know, where we talk about pathways of detoxification. Just because your one pathway of detoxification may be not fully fired up, it, you know, it's asking the question, okay, that pathway doesn't look great, but is that what's showing up in the person, right? It's possible that their lifestyle or something that they're doing is compensating or it's also possible there's another 27 pathways that are redundant that we don't even know about yet that are covering up. So I think that, I mean, I love epigenetics in terms of what are the things we can bring in from the outside to help to positively influence the expression of our genes so that we get a better outcome. But I also, you know, and this is one of the things that you taught us so well was that, you know, just because the genetic report says this, don't make the mistake of thinking that that's what's sitting in front of you. There's also the reality of, number one, what I just said, but also all of the, the whole, the person's entire life until they sat in front of you, the, the, like if they've been eating a very high carb diet or a very high fat diet, like that will have created a scenario in that system that is no longer expressing what the genes say. And so we now have to kind of unpack that, work our way back, and then, you know, always maybe referring back to the genes to say, could they be playing a role, but not taking it for granted that that's, that's full driver or expression that's sitting in front of us. Yeah. It's always a little more complex. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it is. I mean, you can collect all this data, you know, we collect genetics, epigenetics, metabolomics, proteomics, um, I mean, the list goes on, but you can't silo each of those and say, oh, I've got this, so this is what I have to do. You have to look at them and how they relate to each other. And it's it's a much more complex picture than than a lot of the the health gurus are, are painting for people. Um, mm-hmm. especially, I mean, if somebody's telling you it's one thing that's going to change everything, you know, run away, I mean, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. One one of the greatest things that I've found lately is um, I'm on my eighth week of a CGM, continuous glucose monitor. I just took mine off. <laughs> yeah. We all do that. I mean, I but know. it is the best diet plan that I have ever been on. I mean, it is clearly uh, showing me exactly how my body reacts to f- certain foods. And it's very different than what Mike or my wife how she reacts to certain foods. I had one client that he loves pizza like me and he switched to cauliflower crust to get the lower glycemic response. And his glycemic response was higher with the cauliflower crust than with normal white flour. And why? Is that because the cauliflower crust is mixed with rice and all kinds of other crap? (laughs) You know, who knows? I mean, it's just... You know, starches in general for me also spike my my blood sugars. I mean, sushi, I mean, oh, yeah. like 140 on, with sushi just because of the rice in it. And, you know, I I try to keep my, my glucose in like a 12% variability. Um, we have the, uh, a new favorite biometric device called the Ultra Human Ring. You definitely get one of these because they link directly with CGM. 
no, yeah. get out. I'm writing it down. <laughs> yeah, and it, I tell you, that's the, next level. The AI insights of it are better than Nutrisense and levels. Really? Yeah. Okay, the ultra human rate. And I do have a 10% off code if you want it at some I mean, point. They're they're out of India, but they're just starting to enter the U.S. market. But it's the only thing that ever got me away from my Garmin. I'm still wearing my Garmin, but I go on at night now. I just wear no, it. no. That's and amazing. No, no That's really interesting. either, which is really cool. Well, you know what's interesting about the 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 starches and blood glucose to me is for those, you know, because if you think about it, sushi, the rice shouldn't spike your blood sugar in theory because it's resistant starch. This is cooked and cooled rice, which we are told we don't metabolize the starch. It's mm. But here's the the other, there's two underlying things here. Number one, maybe it's not all that true. Number two is most sushi restaurants add some kind of sugar or yeah. wheat to that rice to, to I guess it's, to, I mean, the rice itself would be glutinous. But they do something to maybe make it sweet or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, that that takes us to a place of, hmm, what's really in what I'm eating? And now you have to go home and cook yourself up some plain rice, cool it off and eat it and see, you know, is it true this narrative that resistance starts, it's not going to affect your blood sugar? Because I know for me, like I'm like you, it 100% sends me to the moon. <laughs> it's just... It just sends me to the moon. So I can sit there and tell tell myself a little story about, oh, it's all fine. It's just feeding my gut bacteria. But, you know, it may also indicate maybe your microbiome is a little deficient in those bacteria that you need to break down the resistant starch. Like it, it starts to open a conversation versus a black and white, good, bad, because it should lead to more questions. What's really in the rice? Is it my microbiome that's lacking in certain things that I need to nurture, feed, and seed, like all of these different questions start to come up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the, the thing. If we're not continually testing and challenging the system, we don't know what we're doing to it. I mean, it's guesswork otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And and the system, we learn, I mean, I know I'm learning every minute of every hour of every day. I mean, it's, and very often what we thought was true last year has now been shown to be either not not always untrue but more nuanced there's always another layer of nuance underneath the things that we take for truth when it comes to human physiology and and the way our bodies work and you know and i think this is the challenge with people who write these books that are so definitive in that as long as to me i mean as long as you're framing it with this is what we know today and based on what we know today here's my book as opposed to this is the way it is, right? And, you know, I can think of a couple of books that have been written from that perspective and I, I'm finding it, and I guess it goes back to people who, for whatever reason, put their stake in the sand about one position and refuse to believe that they can move off that position. And that's when those are the people we need to run away from because they become so invested in this identity and in this one position that they stop they stop being open to the possibility that maybe they're wrong. And at the end of the day, I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how accomplished you even are. You have to be open to the possibility that you might be wrong. and Or not even that you might be wrong, just that there's something you didn't know, that you didn't, you weren't able, you didn't have access to and didn't take into account. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, 
yeah, people do not want to be perceived as being lacking in knowledge or wrong about stuff. And it's it's a common pitfall with people, especially especially in the diet industry. I mean, people are, you know, hey, I'm carnivore, I'm paleo, I'm vegan. Um, you know, we work with every one of those diets in our practice. You know, mm -hmm. it's not going to do any good for me to take somebody who's vegetarian and say, hey, you really need to eat some meat. Um, they're not going to they're not going to comply with that. And so you got to figure out ways to get around that. There's ways that you can supplement around it. There's like somebody who's on carnivore. You've got to supplement some plant-based stuff in some way into that diet. Um, but people have this assumption that they can be on this long-term and it's that long-term piece that tends to create the, the flaws in the outcome. For sure. And, you know, maybe there's outliers that that can i don't know you know and i i think we don't know i think in yeah. the history of humankind i don't think you'll find a a society or a tribe or whatever that only ever ate meat because at the end of the day i don't care who you're talking about we are opportunistic feeders we are the weakest animal on the planet and it, when it comes down to survival we will eat anything to survive and you know it makes me laugh all this stuff about well you know 10, I don't know, 100,000 years ago, humans only ate this. I'm like, bullshit. Who, who said? Said who? And as a matter of fact, I just read a paper recently that showed they found somehow they found like a, a skull from way, way back and the, the, the grinding pattern on the teeth and they found some DNA evidence that even then they were eating some kind of grains, which completely blows the whole paleo diet theory out the window. Now, does that mean the paleo di diet's invalid? Not a chance. There's lots about the paleo diet that I think is great. At the end of the day, if you take it down to what the paleo diet really is, it's eating foods that are in their natural state. It's prioritizing vegetables that grow above ground, probably over the tubers underneath the ground. It's eating good quality meat, fish, chicken, eggs, healthy fats. Frankly, if most people went to that, they'd be doing pretty well. Now, is it necessary for human health to exclude all grains, all legumes, all, you know, whatever? Probably not. But to your point, if you do it right, there's always a way to to work a different diet, right? Yeah. So what's your favorite biohack right now, whether it's a test or an intervention? What it, what are you big on right now? Well, um, somebody recently asked me that and I, I said sleep, which I think is a bit of a cop-out. <laughs> I mean, if we were going to talk about foundational, probably it is sleep, right? It's leaning into what sleep really is and how we we cultivate good quality sleep and the whole nine yards. But in terms of the stuff that's out there, like the kooky kind of out there stuff, I mean, definitely I'm fascinated and continue to be fascinating by this world of these tiny little peptides that are called bioregulators. Um because they, it, it, what it would appear is that the they and even certain longer chain peptides seem to have this ability to influence the our genetic expression to a more favorable expression, and you know it's what I love about it is again it's coming from our bodies. This is something that is innate to us, and can we leverage the wisdom of the human body that we barely understand ourselves? 
to help us to achieve an outcome that is beyond what we would normally be able to expect. And I think we're already seeing that. I think we're seeing that a 60-year-old, and not even through bioregulators, but we're seeing that a 60-year-old today, if we look at our grandparents, that 60-year-old was a different person. They had different expectations. They even expressed themselves differently in the world than we do now. A 60-year-old today is much more youthful than your 60-year-old was you know, a couple of generations ago. And how much of that is in our heads? How much of that is the technology we have access to? Because, you know, on paper, our grandparents probably lived in a much healthier world than we do from an environmental perspective. So, you know, we're we're being assaulted by all this technology. And one of the things you, you've said, which I always laugh about, but I think is so interesting is, you know, all this talk about EMFs being so toxic and thinking about it, well, could it be that we will eventually adapt? Could it be that it is actually a hormetic, it could eventually be a hormetic stressor that our physiology ends up adapting to? I just... What I don't, what I think remains to be seen is maybe it's going to take a little bit more time than we have because the technology is ramping up so much faster than our bodies are having a chance to adapt. So maybe that's where the mitigation comes in, right? So anyway, that's that's a complete sidetrack from the question you asked me. Um, yeah. But going back to the bioregulators, I think yeah, that's let's go back to that because uh, I think a lot of people aren't familiar with bioregulators and it'd be good to give them um, an idea of what these bioregulators are. Sure. So so basically, so to people who've heard of peptides beyond collagen peptides, right, that stuff you put in your water that probably doesn't do much, but that's a different conversation for another day. Um, beyond the peptides that are the longer chain peptides. So people may have heard about things like BPC-157 or thymosin beta-4, thymosin alpha-1, let's say. So these are signaling molecules that in some cases do signal genes, but in other cases bind to a receptor and affect, you know, different signaling cascades in the body at a cellular level. The bioregulators are a subset of those. I call them a subset. Other people would say, look, it's just another peptide, but it's it's a little bit like champagne, right? You have to be producing your fizzy wine, fizzy white wine in a particular region in France for it to be called champagne. So bioregulator peptides are probably like that in the sense that there's a very high profile in Russia individual who did the seminal work and did all the research over decades in developing the science behind these very small peptides. So a peptide is, a, is an amino acid chain. The bioregulators, by definition, are no more than four amino acids long. So at the, the smallest one is two amino acids long. The biggest one is four. They are... They always will cross the cellular membrane, they will cross the nuclear membrane, and they will bind, they will actually bind to DNA and influence the expression of genes in inside your cells. They are specific. I mean, they're not a hundred percent specific, but they they are they are pretty specific to the tissues, glands, and organs that they have influence, and they come from those tissues, glands, and organs. So these peptides are naturally occurring in nature. They're naturally occurring in our bodies. We, like so many other things, just make few less of them as we age. So the bioregulator peptides that I'm talking about have been made available either because they've been extracted from animal tissue glands and organs, purified and put into capsules, or once they've been identified, they can be resynthesized by labs synthetically 
and then they could be reintroduced into the body. Typically, I would say five years ago, mostly by subcutaneous injection, but increasingly now you've got labs that are producing sublingual sprays, um, drops, like different ways of reintroducing them, partially because they're so tiny that they can get across um, mucous membranes. They're very easy to absorb into the body. And, you know, they're, they're short amino acid chains. I mean, there's, it's, Teeny. we're going to be absorbing dye and tripeptides without breaking them down. So, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like, I guess new pept would be considered a bioregulator in that sense because it's only two amino acids and, you know, you can take it orally and it absorbs nicely. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like you've got the copper peptide that gets a lot of attention because it can be applied topically. That's a three amino acid peptide that yeah. needs copper to as a cofactor, right? Um, but that one, I mean, it's probably it is a bioregulator by any stretch because I think it was Stanford University did research on GHK and found what what is it that affects over a thousand genes? Like it is nutty, and and I think we've only scratched the surface to trying and understand what this peptide is capable of doing. But we know that our levels drop as we age, so. You know, if we're in this world of increasing our health span and and lifespan, then is it possible that keeping that expression, keeping that molecule available to the body can just keep us repairing and rejuvenating at a cellular level? Mm -hmm. When you when you get people to do some form of biohack, are you pretty specific with how you're going to measure whether it's doing what it's being taken for? Yeah. I mean, look, it depends on the desired outcome, right? I mean, with the bioregulators, a lot of people look to bioregulators as something that can influence their biological age, for example. And so whether it's their telomere length, you've got a bioregulator. I heard it first from you at PaleoFX years ago called Epitalon, which, you know, of the many things that it, that it does, seems to have positive impact on an enzyme called telomerase, which can help to restore um, the telomeres on the end of our DNA. And so it goes to follow that, is it possible that if we use epitalon appropriately over the course of a year or two years, that we can help to restore those telomere ends on the ends of our DNA? But you know, this is what we were talking about ahead of, before the podcast is now let's think about what are all the things that we could be exposed to or doing that is actually causing shortening of our telomeres? What else could we be doing to also support it? And so on the one hand, doing biological age tests when we're trying, when we're leveraging bioregulators to help to improve our biological age, it can be a useful tool. But I also think we have to be looking at everything else, right? I think that if you're living a psychotically stressed life without doing anything to help your body manage and buffer that stress, you can be drinking Epitalon day in, day out. At some level, there's, maybe you can hold the line, but we, I, I'm, you know, I think the, the jury's out on that one. Um, but the interesting thing about the bioregulators is as much as we often look at them as a long play for longevity, they do have applications sometimes even in trying to influence immediate, uh, more immediate things. So the best example of that that I can give you is I've seen a number of women who were still cycling who had lost their cycle for whatever reason. And, you know, they did all the things. They managed their heart. You know, they 
tried to optimize their hormones. They did all the things, couldn't get the cycle back. And it would appear that after using a couple of different bioregulators, namely the pineal gland bioregulator and the ovarian bioregulator, in a number of cases, we saw them, we saw that cycle come back. So sometimes you're just looking for concrete evidence. Sometimes I've also seen people with the thyroid bioregulator, and I would say this is not common, but if the thyroid gland isn't super damaged, it if it hasn't been like 50 years that they've been on thyroid meds or whatever the case may be, sometimes we find people who do all the right things. They bring in the thyroid bioregulator and they find themselves needing to titrate their thyroid meds down. Mm-hmm. I will say that that's not the norm, right? So it it we have to be very, I don't know what the term is. I think we need to be honest with ourselves to say that these bioregulators are doing something very often people use them and they're like, I feel nothing, right? Because it's a lot of under the hood work, if you will. Um, but definitely, I think that whatever I think that whatever outcome it is you're looking for, find the test, find the metric that you're going to work with. And, you know, if the liver bioregulator is said to be helpful for managing blood lipids, it's how it's said to be helpful for helpful for um, even helping with blood sugar management, stuff like that. So then do your end of one experiment. Look at your lab work before you start. Apply your intervention. In this case, the it could be the liver bioregulator with blood vessel, with a couple of other, with the pancreas bioregulator. Like we want to look at the whole system. And now let's remeasure in three months, in six months. So I, the short answer is it depends on what we're trying to achieve with them. Well, I, I think what you're overall saying is is what we've been repeating here is that you know every every response is going to be individualized to the person i mean even though we're 99.9 something percent identical in our genetic code uh-huh. i mean that that little tenth of a percent or three tenths of a percent i mean that's that is huge when it comes to how we respond to things and most people don't kind of pay attention to that. They're like, well, this, you know, it's like, just look at medication. You know, we have all these blood pressure medications and the doctor put you on a blood pressure medication. You just assume it's going to work for you. Yeah. And why is it that it doesn't work at all on some people and other people, it's like uh, they're hyper responders to it. You know, that's the people will focus on that when it comes to medications, but supplements and things that they can buy uh, outside of the physician office, um, they they tend to have a false sense of security, I think, with, mm-hmm. with what they're going on. And you really need somebody to help guide you on that. Yeah, no, 100%. And, you know, I think that, um, I mean, things that people, you know, one of the things I've been talking about a bit lately and when I'm working with someone one-on-one that we talk about is, you know, we keep, we always say, well, what can I add? What can I take? What's the next bioregulator I should try? What's the next uh, peptide supplement? What's the tech I could buy? And I'm like, okay, let's stop the bus for a minute. Let's talk about what we need to take away, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, is there a toxic load in your body that needs to be lightened so that the things that you're, you're adding to the body can actually take hold um, whether it's heavy metals, whether it's underlying infections, whether it's, you know, any, whether it's excess stress, like whatever it is, 
what do we need to, like, what is it that's bogging down your system so to the point where now it's not functioning anymore that we can relieve, you know, even like we, you know, senescent, cellular senescence, this is a big buzz thing right now. Can we reduce the senescent cell load in the body so that the body has, an, has the ability and the space and the initiative to kind of renew at a cellular level? So I think this, this idea of what can I take away is a, is a concept that's not leaned into nearly enough by, by individuals and even by practitioners. Um, and certainly if you're, you know, it, it's, it's tough because in, in a world where we rely on influencers and even me, you know, like I'm at the point now where I, I could be seen as an influencer, be careful that you don't just take all the pushes like all the information I'm pushing out there as the things to do. Because remember, always remember that you need to pull back. You need to look at what needs to be cleared so that all of these other things can do their thing. You do the thing that I do when people come in and they have their list of supplements and you go through and you're like, okay, what are you taking this one for? I'm like, oh, I read that that was really good for, for this. And I'm like, what well, are you monitoring it to see if it's doing that? for you no but you know i read about it well i it's feel very uncomfortable yeah i feel yeah. for them you know because they're being bombarded day in day out with this is the thing this is the thing look at this research look at this paper and and to to something that you said earlier our bio individuality which isn't just the fact that we're different but it's the fact that the influences on our body will vary in infinitesimal ways depending on our lifestyle depending on our history depending on our early childhood adverse events like anything right that is a big piece of what makes us unique and so it's it's hard to, to we just want answers right i just want my cholesterol to go down so i don't have to take a statin so i'm going to take the red yeast rice i'm going to take all the different things and pray that it that it works for me and 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 this is where curation, the nuance, the the peeling back the layers of the onion really becomes critical for for every person. And and I'm sure you get people coming into your office as much as they come with the long list of supplements. They come to you and they say, you know what? I don't know what to do anymore. I don't know what diet to follow. I don't know who to listen to. I don't know what to take. I'm taking 75 different things because to your point, they all sounded like a really good idea. And just to help me to figure this out and to simplify. And and I do think that more people are coming to that place where they're 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 saying, because it becomes unaffordable, right? And they're they're saying, like, help me to understand what do I need to be doing. Let's let's transition into kind of longevity and age rejuvenation, because I know this is a popular topic for a lot of people. Uh, there, there's a lot of people just getting into the industry and people like you and I have been in it for decades. Um, but you know, what is it that, um, that you would say is the advantage to looking into a longevity or age rejuvenation program for people? Well, I think it's, the, I mean, the advantage ultimately is that if you're looking at longevity and rejuvenation, you're looking at being the healthiest version of yourself, right? So if, if it, it, I think that 
I think there's there's different pieces to the puzzle here. I mean, there's the fundamental reality that no human, we don't want to die. Our entire existence is predicated on, I don't want to die. And really, deep down inside, we don't even believe we're going to die. If you get philosophical about it, we're like, yeah, yeah, I know everybody dies. I know, I know, I know everybody dies. But really, deep down inside, we're like, but I'm not going to die because I can't not be here. I mean, I'm only here. Like, I can't not be here. From an existential perspective, we sort of can't yeah. of it, right? So nobody wants to die. But I think what's happened over the last number of years, and I think what's because the the rejuvenation space and the age reversal space has exploded, and it is exploding. And I think we are at such an incredible point in time where the the, the what's available to people is finally catching up to the theory in many ways. We now are saying, not only do I don't want to die, but I want to live well. I want to look good. I want to have my head together. I want to be able to go hiking. I want to, And I want to be doing that when I'm 80, and then I want to be doing that when I'm 90. So we've really upped the ante. So if that's something in your mind that you're sitting there saying, I want to live a long time and I want to have all of these other things, then you have to be looking at the longevity and age rejuvenation programs because those are the people that are in the space of not fixing what's wrong with you. I mean, they're going to want to look at to help to overcome whatever is ailing you, as it were, but they're actually taking it a step further and saying, what can we do now to prevent the decline? Because it's always easier to slow to prevent something than it is to reverse it, which isn't to say we can't because now with stem cells and exosomes and all the and V cells and all the other cells out there, all these incredible technologies that are being made available are co- and that are coming online, we're starting to see the hint that we can maybe undo some of the damage that's been done. But the, the good programs are sitting there saying, yeah, let's undo what we can, but let's also stop the decline, like slow down the decline or flatten the curve. And, you know, most people don't realize that 75% of your longevity is determined by lifestyle factors. Um, and frustrating because we have people come time, they're coming in and do exosomes or, or plasma apheresis or young plasma infusions, and they're not making any effort to alter their lifestyle. So without that foundation, and you mentioned this earlier, without that foundation, you you're going to be building a house on quicksand. I mean, it's just not going to hold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You go but, celebrate that infusion with a bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, these things aren't going to do much of anything without the, uh, the efforts being made on the lifestyle front. And, you know, you talked about sleep and that's probably the number one thing that I see that either people don't really prioritize sleep or they're just inconvenienced by it. And by far, I mean, that's one of my number one interventions is is getting the sleep dialed in. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I, look, I mean, it, poor sleep is going to affect your metabolism. It's going to affect your ability to function cognitively. It's going to affect your, your body's ability to recover, your brain. Like there's Literally, it's the root, right? And I think a close second to that or maybe aligned with it, but it's also affected by sleep is your ability to manage stress. Absolutely. Right? And 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 they go hand in hand because if you're super stressed, you can't sleep. And if you can't sleep, you're super stressed. So it is absolutely a chicken or the egg thing. <laughs> and that's where the biometric monitors can help you. I mean, to just get 
they they may not be exact on sleep stages, but you can see changes in your sleep stages with the biometric monitors. Um, that's been super valuable. The the stress score or HRV to to kind of see where you are from a stress standpoint. I mean, invaluable for sure. Yeah, for sure. And and you know, it's funny because a lot of people I've I've spoken to people like, yeah, it stresses me out to look at that stuff. And, you know, the invitation is to reframe the information that you're getting. It's not a judgment. It's not, you know, it's not a report card every morning, oh, you did a bad job. It's if you can approach it as just feedback, right? And data and an ability to learn. And for the for most clients, it's it it concretizes to them the value of the things we're asking them to change and to do so that they can see, wow, when I eat finish eating three hours before going to bed, check it out. Like I got an A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but helping them to kind of take a little bit of a step back and not take it as a judgment sometimes is is the first hurdle we have to overcome. But to your point, it's and as these devices become more sophisticated, I mean, this the ultra human ring. I mean, like we're, we're we're getting to the point where we have the ability to have like a lab on board at all times to give us feedback on what we're doing. That's yeah. That's amazing. Like to someone who's willing to make the changes and willing to step through that door, what a gift. I always imagine something like in the movie The Island. You, do you remember that movie? No. They had cl clones that were being grown on this island and they were just being grown for organ replacements of the real people oh. and thought they were winning the lottery when they got called out. And uh, it turns out they were getting harvested. Um, oh. but, but so they had consciousness on top of everything. Absolutely. You know, it was crazy, but they would pee in the toilet in the morning and the toilet would analyze their urinary metabolites and, and alter their dietary uh, supplementation for the day. I mean, I imagine that uh, a couple of years ago, I was like, that would be so cool to, to have something and we're getting very close to it. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, I just spoke to a guy recently who's got a little, he's developing, I'm sure you've heard of this, a little home device where with a drop of blood, you can get feedback on your inflammatory status that day. And I mean, it's not perfect. It's not looking at all the inflammatory cytokines, but it's very interesting insight. Like how cool would it be if you did, you know, you, you implemented whatever intervention and you were able to, in the comfort of your own home for almost no money, take a prick of blood, put it on a little thing, stick it in a machine and get feedback that says, hey, your inflammation dropped or, uh-oh, your inflammation's gone up. Um, and I think that the toilet telling you, giving you information, it's probably it's actually probably possible today if somebody was motivated enough. Yeah, I agree. So. Well, we are coming to a close here, and we touched on about 10% of the topics that I had wanted to touch <laughs> on. So we will definitely oh, well. <laughs> have you back and, uh, and go a little bit deeper some of these areas for sure. I always love our conversations. Likewise. I think it's always a pleasure. I always learn something when I talk to you, Dan. So it's anytime would be a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll have you on again. Thank you so much. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.